0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This week on our panel, we have Dave Kimura. How's it going, everyone? Brian Hogan. Hey, everybody. Jason Sweat. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.TV. And this week, we're going to be talking about basically what to do when you're coming onto a new project. Now, there could be a team there. Maybe there isn't a team there. Um, you know, could be a, a really old project, could be a, a relatively updated project. Um, but yeah, Brian suggested this topic. We were talking about a few other things, but um, I'm, I'm curious, Brian, like, what what angles on this are you looking for? Like, what are the challenges that you run into or that you're aware that other people run into?
1: So, yeah, if you're let's say you're a consultant or you're, you're a new employee, you just picked up a new job. Um, and you're going to be running into a whole bunch of new things. You're going to be running into a, a new project, which means a new code base that you have to get up to speed with. You're going to be meeting new people. You're going to be figuring out who the, who the stakeholders are, both externally and internally. Um, you're going to be learning the new processes that people use. Maybe, maybe you're familiar with Trello, but this new place uses Jira. Um, there's, there's a whole bunch of things that if you're, if you're a new employee or if you're a consultant, that you're going to run into. And it doesn't matter if it's your first job or if it's your 15th job, these problems all exist. And so I'm interested to hear how everybody navigates these kinds of challenges when, when joining on a new project.
2: I have one, one thing that I like to do when I'm starting a new project is I look for a small win, like some really small feature or bug fix or something like that, that won't be too terribly challenging, but it's not so trivial that it's just like a one line thing. The perfect size is something that requires, a little bit of investigation and understanding and stuff like that, but not so big that it's going to take me like a month before I accomplish anything. Um, and that can be like a good first step because if you get that small win, then you sent some momentum in the right direction. It shows you that you're capable of working with this new code base, and it also shows your your stakeholders the same thing.
1: And I suppose as you go through that process, you're you're going to maybe identify someone who you have to meet and ask some questions, you know, with, and so you can build a relationship that way. Um, you will know, get, you'll get acclimated to the ticket system, things like that. And that's a, uh, that, that could probably get, create a lot of avenues for communication for you as well. Right. Mm hmm. One other thing. And that also a good
2: know. thing to do is, is suggest a full code rewrite on your first day that usually, oh,
1: uh, could, yeah. <laughs> people, people love to hear that, especially start out with who wrote this crap. I can't believe who, who was the, the, the idiot that wrote all this code, right? They love to hear that too. It was me. Sorry. That definitely makes (laughs) them happy. Yeah. No, don't, don't.
0: No. (laughs) This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Are you searching for a new job? That can be stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole, never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through the interview process just to find out at the very end that the salary, offer, or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Hired is the world's most intelligent talent-matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering, development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. We make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. Instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. After completing one simple application, top employers apply to hire you. And on Hired, you receive personal interview requests and upfront salary information so you can make informed decisions about what opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big brand names like Facebook and smaller emerging startups. The size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. And we help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. Open to relocation? Let them know. Your privacy and autonomy in your job search is of utmost importance. And if you sign up today using the show's link, that's Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues, you can get double the normal hiring bonus. That's $600 instead of $300. So go check them out at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues.
2: Just a full code rewrite on your first day that
1: usually uh, <laughs> yeah. people, people love to hear that, especially start out with who wrote this crap. I can't believe who, who was the, the the idiot that wrote all this code. Right. They love to hear that, too.
0: Yeah. It
3: was me. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> it definitely makes yeah. them happy. Yeah. No,
1: don't don't no.
0: <laughs> so I, I have a few tricks here. Um, a lot of this is aimed at the database or at the, the code, but some of it does tie into the who's who. Um, one of the things that I like to do is I like to get a churn report on the repo. And what that does is it tells me which files are changing the most often. Um, and Rails has, or Ruby has a gem that will do this uh, static analysis for you on the Git repository. And then what, you, what that tells you is it tells you which files are the most important, or at least the ones that are most likely to change. And usually that's where kind of the nexus of activity is going to be on the repo. And if you can kind of then understand those classes or those files, then that sets you up to be able to understand what the rest of the app is doing.
2: Wow. That's a really good good idea. And it never occurred to me to do such a thing, but I'm definitely aware of that kind of 80, 20 of a code base where there's like a a certain section of the code base that is going to be like most of your time is going to be spent in that area And if you can figure out what that area is, right, that's the idea, then Mm -hmm. it like can help you gain an understanding really quickly.
0: Yeah. The other thing I do with that is once I have that report and I'm looking at the class or whatever, if there's anything in there I don't understand, then a lot of times I'll go look for tests for that. And if they don't have them, then I'll actually write them. And then what I do is I fiddle with it to see how I can break the test or break the expectation so that I know about where the boundaries are for that. Um, because again, if you know, it, it just kind of helps me handle that WTF and I either do it, you know, and then I just revert the changes in Git, or I'll put it in my own branch so that I know what I'm dealing with. Maybe I'll check in the tests, but anyway,
2: yeah, I was, I was going to ask, do you commit those tests? Cause it can be a hard sell as like your first thing. If you write some tests then you're going to have to like merge that in and deploy it and all this stuff. And it's probably going to be hard to get other people on board to just have you commit that.
0: There's usually not a lot of resistance. I find when you're dealing with adding tests to a repo, um, a lot of, a lot of my clients in the past have kind of been like, look, we don't want the tests cause we don't want to pay you to spend the time on them. But if it's kind of my process of exploration and I check them in and nobody ever runs them, but me, nobody cares. And then if yeah, it does add, if it adds overhead to the test suite, um, generally it doesn't add enough to really make a difference.
1: I've, I've always managed to sort of uh, do that same kind of process, just, this is, uh, I, I, I write tests because this is how I understand your code base. This is Mm -hmm. how I, uh, I make sure that the program does what I think it's going to do. Um, and you're, you're, you know, you're paying me for, for my help on the project. Uh, it'll probably take me more time if you don't let me write the tests.
0: (laughs) Yeah. That's generally how (laughs) I've sold it too. And yeah, it's the same argument except I generally put it more like, Well, I can either uh, doodle on a piece of paper to get the design out or I can write a test and get the design out. And if I write the test to get the design out, yeah, then I have this sanity check going down the road (laughs) that it works. But either way, I'm going to have to do this step. So I may as well do it in a way that pays off later, too.
2: So I find it. Oh, go ahead. I find find it pretty easy to like write a feature and then tack some tests onto that branch, Mm -hmm. whether or not the tests are like relevant to that feature or not. Um, and that's, that's fine. I don't think I really have encountered resistance to that kind of thing. But the idea of like just writing some tests for the purpose of understanding some code, it's probably usually the, the scenario where the client has like a really formal, uh, dev process where like, and I'm not saying this is a good dev process to have, but where a developer writes a feature and then they committed, it goes through code review, whatever. Then it gets kicked over to a QA team and the QA team grabs the ticket and does testing in that area. And then after a really long period of time, it finally gets deployed. i found that people usually don't want to put something through that whole process unless there's actually some functionality behind it.
1: That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. I I find myself in lots of situations, almost every project I've joined on uh, as a consultant doesn't have any tests, um, and the people who are paying uh, paying my consulting rate, they don't really see a problem with me adding them because they don't have any, and they don't, and that's that's just how it works. Is we don't have any tests, we we don't we haven't really prioritized them, or we don't know how to write them, or things like that. And so I don't tend to encounter a lot of resistance among the people on the team writing tests. What I will find is they won't write them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's sort of the reason they don't they don't want to write them. But nobody really Tends to stop, like to actually say, "No, you will not write tests. We don't want your writing tests." I don't, mm-hmm. I don't tend to run into that very often. A lot of times, it's more of, a, and, "Oh, you want to, you want to mm-hmm. write tests? That would be fantastic." Um, yeah. So well, I, I think I it depends. Fortu- I feel fortunate in that, in that regards. I, I, I recognize that that's not as common. Uh, yeah. Talking to other from other, talking to other people, I recognize that's not as common.
2: It's, well, it's Mar- probably did. worth mentioning that it. Sorry, it, it depends on like your relationship with the client and your clout with the client. Like if you're doing staff og style consulting or contracting is probably the more appropriate word. And just like plugging into somebody else's team and the other people have been there for a long time and you're just new, then it's pretty hard. But if like you're the sole developer, like taking over a a rescue project, then it's probably pretty easy. So let me also, can can I
0: chime in here real quick? Because um, I think we're kind of talking our way around consulting And Mm -hmm. this, this is something that you have to do when you get a new job or move to a new project within a company as well. So I don't want, I don't want people tuning out because they're saying, Hey, look, you know, um, I'm just not a consultant. So why do I care? Uh, the reality is replace
2: those terms with, you know, if you're a new employee somewhere and it's a big team and everybody
1: else has been there for years, then it's going to be hard. Right. It's it's same, same deal. Right. That gets to the crux of the crux of the the initial question I asked is, you know, that's one of those things you have to navigate really carefully when you, when you, when you join, a team, uh, you know, what uh, the people on the team, they have, they already have, uh, they have already made a bunch of decisions. And when you're coming in, you don't, you don't really know why a lot of these things happen. You, you look, you can look at a code base and you can say, well, that just looks silly. Why would you do that? But you know, there, there's, there are people there with a lot, with a lot more experience uh, that, understand the, the background, I call it institutional knowledge. You know, Mm -hmm. they know what the business decisions were. They understand that some, some sacrifices were made in order to hit a deadline. So what do you, what do you all do to, to sort of understand those kinds of things and find those kind of get, get a handle on an institutional knowledge when you're, when you're the new person there?
3: Well, that's actually the perspective that I come from, where I'm usually the person who's already there and I'm onboarding a new developer and getting them acclimated into our ecosystem. So, you know... Typically, whenever we bring on someone new that's going to be working on a project that I own or that I'm working with, I'll actually give them a full demo of the project. And I'll actually record it so they can reference to it later. But I think the key point is to actually show them, here is what we're doing, here is the features, and here are the critical points in the application that must work and then we'll actually start diving into some of the code base and we use jira for um, handling our issues features and bug fixes i'm sorry but i know jira's not bad i like it (laughs) so shut it um no everyone has their own preference for issue tracking version one or whatever but you know i'll i'll give them something that i know that they should be able to handle so something that's not going to completely overwhelm them and maybe it's something that you know uh it's a feature that we've been wanting to add for some time it's just there's never been enough resources to handle it so you know i'll give them something simple and just kind of you know be right next to them and kind of physically or virtually, and just kind of step them through, you know, here's how I would approach handling this situation and just, you know, take what we did on the live demo and actually show them the code behind it and how it steps through. Then after some time, after they've gotten their feet wet, you know, doing what you said, Jason, you know, kind of get that first small win. Then they've gotten enough exposure of the application to where now that they have an idea of what the business is what the application is supposed to do and they've seen some of the code base i then go back through and do a demo again uh similar to the first one where we step through uh some of the critical features then actually show uh right side by side the code that's actually executing it and how it works why we made these kind of decisions around it and then just more the general hierarchy of the application
1: So you have a sort of a comprehensive plan for onboarding somebody to the team, which I think is fantastic. And I commend you for doing that. How do you uh, to the people who are listening, who may have to onboard new team members who are in your situation, what message do you have for them? If they were to say, I just I don't have time in my schedule to put something together like that when we onboard somebody, What, what would you what would your response be to someone like that? Who would say that to you?
3: Well, if you just onboarded a senior developer to help out with your application and if you were not willing to invest the time to uh, correctly onboard them to where they are actually going to be productive and useful, then you might as well just hired a bunch of junior developers. You know, part of you know, being a more senior developer or someone with more experience in that, uh, application space, you know, whether you're the subject matter expert or whatever, I mean, that's part of, you know, development. It's not just, uh, you know, writing lines of code, it's working with others and being able to teach them and show them what you guys are doing and why you're doing it this way.
1: Awesome. So to to the rest of the panel, when you when you join a project, do you sometimes have difficulty sort of putting, I don't know, I would say putting your ego aside and sort of being open to the way a team does things? Or is that is that something that you struggle with? Because it's something that uh, earlier in my career, something that I really struggle with. I kind of came in with attitude of I I know what I'm doing. Let's set the ground running. And then you kind of have this realization of, you know, they, they really do things a lot differently here. So what kind of what kinds of things have you struggled with in regards to that? So for me,
0: I mean, most of the time, it's not so much what they're doing differently. It's as opposed to what they're not doing that I think would pay off. And sometimes I come in and make a suggestion and it turns out that in order to implement it, you know, it would take some change. So, I mean, some of the things that I suggest to pretty much every client and employer that I've had is to do continuous integration. And, you know, it's okay, well, it it still takes me a day or so to set up Jenkins and, you know, make sure it's running all of the right tests in the right way. And, you know, a lot of times then it's okay, well, let's do some continuous deployment, you know, and then maybe we stick with Jenkins and try and figure out how to do it from there. Or maybe we switch to a different system that has a lot of that built in. And again, you know, it's like, well, it's all this overhead to basically do something that we're already doing. Um you know, we're all running the tests on our machine anyway, but you know, at the same time, it's, you know, talking about just communicating, you know, some of those benefits and things and okay, well, nobody's looking at CI or, um, things like that, that, I mean, that's generally where I come in and make the suggestions. Um, I, I try not to come in and make suggestions as far as, you know, major changes to an existing process. If it's working, then that's great. And if it, you know, if eventually I just decide that the way that they do things doesn't work for me, then I'll go find a different place to be.
1: Yeah. I've, I've encountered um, at some of the places that I've worked as a full-time employee, I've encountered consultants that would come in and, you know, I've, I've, I've had consultants, or uh, team augmentation people just come in with sort of a hotshot attitude. Of, oh, you're using Coffee, or you're using JavaScript. You should be using CoffeeScript, or you're using React. Oh, you should be using Ember. Or they're really kind of a, sort of a condescending. You're not using the tool I I'm familiar with, uh, therefore you're wrong. Uh, and, and I, I sort of going to caution people to really understand the lay of the land for a little bit when you join a new project, before you start making suggestions. Um, I I always advise people to just spend a lot of time in the beginning, just listening and and understanding the people, the attitudes and the environment. Um, and certainly give suggestions when asked, but I I don't think it's, I don't personally think it's wise uh, to just start. Offering unsolicited suggestions when you're new to a team. What do y'all think about that?
3: Well, if if I come across something like that, I usually ask, like, "Why are you doing this way instead of that way?" You know, uh, could be anything, like a uh, authorization method or something like that. So, you know, I usually frame it as a question instead of, you know, like you're not using this. Oh well, goodbye. Uh, it's more of a, you know, just for my own personal learning, um, of a question, you know, just saying, why are you doing this instead of that? You know, just to see if there's something that I'm missing. So I think to all of y'all's points, it's important to be humble. Uh, whether you're onboarding someone or you're new to a team, you know, if you jump in there, guns blazing, then you're going to get a lot of resentment from people who you work with on a daily basis. And when you really do need their help, they might not, be there for you. So yeah, you know, if you come in there and just start insulting people, uh, and (laughs) tearing apart their application, even if there are some things that are just blatantly wrong, it's not even a objective, uh, question. It's just wrong, you know, to come in there, to ask the questions, to allow them to explore the ideas and Mm -hmm. to come to the epiphany themselves that, Oh wow. Yeah. No. Um, we kind of dropped the ball right there.
1: Well, a lot of times people are doing the best they can with the knowledge they had available at the time, with the resources they had available at the time, and I think that it's a good idea. My philosophy is always to try to give people the benefit of the doubt under those circumstances, because I've been in those circumstances, and yeah. I've shipped a lot of crap I'm not proud of, but it, <laughs> but it worked, but it worked, and it was the best I could do given the constraint that I was in. But yeah. I know. If, but I I know uh, this is a little bit of anxiety cause if I I know someone who looks at that code and I go, oh, Brian wrote that. That's garbage. Wow, that's horrible code. Uh, my favorite and, thing is when you know, I
2: copy like, paste some file to like refactor something, and I like paste a thousand lines of somebody else's horrible garbage, <laughs> and then <laughs> my name get blamed for all of it. <laughs> sure,
0: yeah. sure. Well, one, but uh, yeah, one thing I want to yeah. add to this though is that I found that in a lot of cases. Um, people are actually, I I have kind of a window of opportunity when I'm new to a team to actually, um, make some changes. Right. So I come in with a different perspective and yeah, I, I try not to go in with the perspective of you're doing it wrong, but I do try and come in with the perspective of, Hey, you know, um, it looks like we have this problem and we solved it at this other place in a different way, or we solved it in another place in this way. Or coming in and saying, hey, have you considered doing this thing that you're not doing? Um, and, and one example, and man, this was a long time ago. Um, I worked actually with David Brady, who's a former panelist on the show. Um, I worked with him at uh, crimereports.com. And when I got hired, A, I got hired because I had experience setting up a CI machine. Um, as well as, you know, the fact that I could code and I could do some operations stuff. But also when I came in, I made a few other suggestions in areas where people were complaining about the issues. We were also doing agile and agile retrospectives. And so it it made it easy to bring it up because, you know, um, of course, uh, David and I got that going as well. The the whole agile thing at, at that particular job and just you know, doing daily standups and things like that. But um, a lot of times what what you find is you'll find that certain people have certain issues with the way things are done. And if they find in you both new ideas and an ally, um, you can make those changes. And also coming in as an outsider and asking questions like, you know, uh, I've done this in the past and it worked really well. Is there a reason why you're not doing it? Um, You know, and, and couching it in more friendly terms, I guess. Um, a lot of times you'll start either getting answers or you're, you'll start getting thoughtful looks (laughs) about it. But but once you get acclimated to things there, um, then a lot of times it's, oh, well, we've just always done it that way. You know that.
1: So I've had, that's really good. That's really good advice. Really come at it. You know, you're still going to get the same results, but you're going to come at it with a more friendly, helpful. I want to understand your organization. Mm -hmm. I want to understand the reasons that are here. Um, I am not necessarily saying you're doing it wrong. I'm suggesting that here's how we've solved it somewhere else. I like that. I I like that approach a lot.
2: And and I think something really important to realize is that the ideas you're thinking of for changing things and improving things, you're probably not the first person in the organization to think of that. You're probably preaching to the choir. If you come with those ideas to your team members and you know, like you guys have said earlier in this conversation, um, they, the other people have probably, they probably want to improve things, but there are certain reasons that they are the way they are. I've had a really interesting experience over the years where, um, especially when I was younger, I would come into an organization and I would look around both technically and non-technically. I would say, man, if I was running this place, I would do things so much different, so much better. But then I've had more and more opportunities where it's like, Hey, if I were running the show, I would do it differently. And somebody says, okay, Jason, what should we do? Tell us what to do and we'll do it. And at that point it's kind of like, um, well, and you start to think through it and you're like, man, we really can't just like change everything overnight. Things are the way they are because of certain realities. Uh, and maybe we can do things better. But like I had this situation last year, I was working with a client for several months and they had a really long cycle time it was a really, really long time between the time you'd build the feature and the time it got deployed and everybody hated it and it, it made it so that deployments were really like risky and painful. And, and it was just a, a really tough process. And I wanted to fix it, but it was really hard to fix because our code base didn't have much test coverage. And so it couldn't do anything like automated deployments or, you know, all committing to a master branch um, making it so that we don't need to do all these merges and stuff like that. And so, like I kind of said earlier, there was, there's a lot of inertia in a certain direction. And so it's like, even if somebody handed me the keys and said, all right, Jason, just change things however you want to change them. We'll do whatever you want us to do. You can't always just, just do it.
0: I, I want to go, go ahead. John. I want to go back to something that you said earlier, Jason, though, because you said uh, you're probably not the first person to think of it. Um, in Mm -hmm. certain organizations and I've worked in organizations where um, the people had such vastly different backgrounds from me to where I really was the first person in the organization to think of it. So, Mm. you know, some people were new, some people came in from flash or flex. This was a long time ago um, or Java um, or dot net. And so, you know, they just kind of came into things from a different place where they thought about problems in a different way and where, certain ideas really hadn't penetrated the way that they did software and so when i came in and suggested something it was like the light came on right it was like oh yeah that would totally solve this problem that we have and we hadn't even thought of it because they just hadn't experienced it that way and they they solved other problems in completely different ways that i thought were pretty awesome and novel and they were things that they took for granted so it does depend on the organization. But if you're going into a standard Ruby organization from another standard Ruby organization, they've probably heard most of what you're coming up with.
1: Exactly. I have, I have this belief that I've developed over the, over the time that I've spent in software development. And, I, 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 and it's that I, I really firmly believe that software development is really only 20% code. Now it's a big 20%. <laughs> it's a big 20%, but I, I firmly believe that all the, other, all the other parts of software development are really people. It's it's twenty percent code and eighty percent people. Oh, it's so true. Do you have a, if you have a code base that doesn't have tests in it, is that a code issue or is, is that a people issue? If, if right, you the have, code didn't write itself. Yeah, if, if you have people, if you have if you have bad design, is that a code issue or is that a people issue that there was communication problems with, with the stakeholders or things that didn't what they want? So one of the things that I. I I've sort of bristle at is when I hear people in the software development industry talk about things like soft skills. Think of writing and and uh, presentations and uh, getting along with other people as sort of soft skills or soft talks at conferences. And I, I I firmly believe that those are just as valuable skills as being able to 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 pick up a new a new framework, uh, pick up a new programming language, and, and build awesome stuff. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna downplay how big that 20% of technology and code is. because it's, it's huge. But I still think that a lot of the issues that we solve, is, we face, on a daily basis in software development are, are people issues, uh, and not necessarily code issues. And that's why I'm so interested in, in understanding, you know, how how people work with, you know, on a team with, when they join a new team, you know, what's going on there, just besides learning the code base. There's a lot more going on.
2: Yeah, yeah if absolutely. you have strong, if you have strong people skills and mediocre coding skills. You're probably going to have an easier career than if you have strong coding skills and weaker people skills
3: yeah because if you have a great idea but you're unable to express it what good is the idea
0: yeah but the flip side is is you have to have enough experience to be able to add enough value in the right places i mean you can't discount either one you you have to be able to do the awesome technical stuff and you have to be able to do the the awesome people stuff. And if you, I mean, I I've worked with genius developers. I mean, these guys, like they blew my mind with some of the stuff that they came up with and wrote, Mm -hmm. but, um, I picked it all up from the code because I couldn't talk to them. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, sometimes it was because they were like painfully shy and sometimes it was because they were just total jerks. And, um, you know, either one, I mean, if, if you really can't communicate with somebody about what's going on, um, your code has to communicate with their code. And so it, it just makes it really difficult to get that piece done. And a lot of times what will wind up happening is, and and I'm sure we've all been in this situation, you get called in, right? Why isn't your feature done? And it's, well, I have to interview interface with this other guy's feature or this other gal's feature. And it turns out, you know, well, then what's the problem, you know? And, and you're saying well they won't communicate with me and they're saying well i i don't have time to deal with them right now and you know anyway it causes problems and so yeah if if you but if you discount um the the technical uh stuff as well i mean that's ultimately what you're getting paid for is to produce that stuff do you ever have issues crop up in production that you don't see in development do you even know how your app is performing in production Performance, errors, and analytics to figure out where your app is bogging down are important to keep an eye on. You could try one of those error tracking apps, but why not use a tool that does it all? Try Datadog. Datadog tracks performance, collects data on your errors, and provides you with the information you need to improve your user's experience and fix bugs without having to log into the production server and dig through the logs. What if my app spans across multiple servers and services you ask? Datadog seamlessly collects metrics from every corner of your application including services like Amazon AWS and systems like Redis. So whether you want a clear view into your application's performance, need to be notified of new errors, or to keep track of your application across various services you use, use Datadog. If you go to devchat.tv/datadog and start a free trial, they'll send you a free Datadog t-shirt. But if you discount um, the, the technical uh, stuff as well, I mean, that's ultimately what you're getting paid for is to produce that stuff. So you have to be
1: able to. Yeah, best yeah. to have both. Yeah, well, I, I'm not saying that you, you want to have, you, you don't want to have a good mix. What I'm suggesting is that the technical isn't just the code. It's so true. And your, it's not your, skill, your skill either. set. Yeah, your skill set of being able to plug some stuff together. You could be a great programmer. Uh, and you could deliver that great stuff, but if you deliver the wrong thing, because your communication is off or you're not paying attention or you're not engaging because I want to write code, I don't want to talk, I I don't have meetings. Um, you're not going to stick around long either. You could write beautiful code that nobody wants that solves no, no business problem at all. We're, (laughs) we're, we're not being paid to write code. I'm going to, I'm going to be very, very clear about that. Software developers are not being paid to write code. They're being paid to solve problems. Yep. Solve business problems. Code is one of the tools that we use to solve those business problems. But I guarantee you as a consultant, I have solved problems for businesses without writing a single line of code. A lot of times, <laughs> hey, we want to, hey, we want a blog. Great. Here's Squarespace. Because yeah. that's the right, that's the right solution. I didn't just dump, jump into the code editor and install, install middleman or Jekyll. You you use the, use the holistic approach of, of this to solve people's problems and they love you for that. And they're happy to hand you a check to solve bigger problems later on.
3: That was actually a question on, uh, one of Justin cereals, uh, on his type indicator survey, you know, is it, uh, let me, let me find that code. Uh, is it better to, uh, is it more important to build the right thing than to build, uh, the thing, right. And it was, it was just kind of funny. So I took oh, that it, survey.
1: It's, it's really, it's really, it's really important. We should, we should, yeah. uh, we should probably link to that. Yeah. Um, I, I, th- I think it's, it's really important to, to think about those, those kinds of scenarios as we're solving these problems. Um, because we do have this tendency as software developers to, I want to solve this, I want to solve this code. I want to write this. Uh, it's really exciting because we, we love the challenge. We love that challenge. Um, and. Sometimes it's not the the best use of our resources or or their resources, the team's
3: resources. So we kind of plugged writing tests, and you know sometimes uh, getting the pushback that either there are no tests or we don't want tests. So if anyone's listening, and they're trying to convince their employer to you know that hey, we need this code coverage, uh, this test coverage for our code. One thing you can tell them is like, look, we're going to test our application no matter what. It's just, do you want it to be automated? Because I'm going to spend much more time manually testing each feature that I push out every single time. Or we could have this fancy automatic code scan or this uh, test coverage that will do it for us automatically every time.
1: So there's really, and there's a really fun way that I've I solved that on one project with a team. I, I said, I promise you, you're spending just as much time, maybe even more, testing this application manually. And so we set up rescue time on their machines. and We just looked at the logs. Look how much time you're spending in a browser versus your code editor. Yeah. What are you doing? What are you doing in the browser? Well, and, the, and look at the URL. Look at the, look at the URL. It's localhost. What are you doing? The, well,
0: the other end of that you know. is, um, I, <laughs> a lot of times they have a bug tracker set up. And yeah. if they have a bug tracker set up, it's like, you know, it's like, look, well, how, you know, how many of these bugs could we have caught with tests? And it, you know, it's back to that 80, 20, right? Well, 80% of them could have been caught with the test. And the other 20% are things that we actually have to help our users with.
1: Yeah. And I'd really rather spend my, my, my time on those kinds of problems than, oh, yeah. uh, you know, than the, than the really ones that honestly we could have caught. Um, but well, and are you so losing I,
0: customers? Are you losing? Yeah. Are you losing developer time? Where it's okay. Well, I haven't touched that code for three weeks, and so now I have to get my head back into that space, as opposed to having a test that tells me the second I try and commit it uh, through CI or just you know the habitual I commit and then I run the tests that says, "Hey, you busted it."
1: I mean, you could you could have a whole you could have a whole whole big discussion on on things like technical debt, and you could yeah. and you could have all these all these kinds of discussions about. That. but I, I I think it's just really important for you know for everyone to think about yes you're gonna have to make trade-offs but you really really want whenever you're writing that code you really want to be able to change that code later however you go about doing it you're going to ch- you're going to change that code later just because you've just because the deadline came and you shipped the feature you're going to come back to that code later on so you do you want to leave yourself something that makes it easier for you to touch it later because you will be back yeah uh, and and that's i think one of the things that i find really interesting about about joining new teams is uh, i like to find out you know, I like to find out how, how the flow works. Like, do you, do you have sort of like, do you have feature freeze time where you just kind of go back and clean up your technical debt? How do you handle technical debt? Those are some of the questions that I just ask, uh, when I'm joining a team, I've even asked them in interviews before, like before I even joined a team, uh, how, how do you handle technical debt? How do you, do you, do how do you, how do you test your applications? Like I won't even use leading questions. Like do you automate, but use automated tests, do you use, can you, you deployment? I sort of leave them open-ended. Like how do you know that you're delivering the right features to your customers? How do your developers know they're delivering the right features? to the stakeholders, you know, things like that, because I really want to know what I'm walking into. The worst situation for me would be that I I get there on the job and I didn't do enough research and asking questions before I signed a contract for employment or a contract for consulting and I'm just in the wrong place. That's like the worst time to find that out, right?
3: Yeah, so um, another thing that, you know, I have picked up a few applications in the past where, you know, I'm being brought on into a existing app. So do y'all want to talk about just how you become familiar with an app? If, you know, let's say you don't have someone readily available to, uh, help you step through it.
1: I spend a lot of time talking with the the person who uh, is the business owner of the app. If it's like a small app and there's, there's still somebody who, who uses it, who knows the customers better than I do. And so I sort of I almost treat it like I, I, the code doesn't even exist. Like how, how is this supposed to work just so I can get a, a handle on what it looks like from the end user perspective. And if I can, I'll, I'll become a customer and and sort of use the app as a customer and sort of try to get that. What's, what's it looking like from the outside in, uh, and then try to map that up with the code that I see. But I really want to understand what's supposed to be happening because that becomes a very interesting situation too. Sometimes, Sometimes what, what's supposed to be happening when you talk to the customer isn't what's actually happening in the app. And it's things that they want you to do to the app. Uh, so it becomes a very interesting discussion uh, and, and it, it lets me feel out any communication issues that I'll run into later on.
0: Yeah, I also like to ask what, what's the most important or what are the three most important things that this app does? Because they'll tell you, you know, if, if you only if you could only pick one, two or three features for this app to have and you had to sell it to your customers, what would they be? Because then what you're getting to is the meat of why people are paying for it. And then you know where to focus your your time and attention. That stuff has to work. The other stuff, if it doesn't work or it's a little bit buggy, probably not going to bother as many people. And if they don't have that information, I always recommend that they set that up. That That they put some kind of tracking in there so that they can find that out.
3: i like that
1: yeah it's really good suggestion
3: (laughs) yeah because if they can't answer that then i think they have bigger problems
1: well yeah again and it tells you right it tells you what what you're in for yeah (laughs) (laughs) um
3: has it ever actually happened to anyone where you go in for a job and you ask them like what is this application what are the three main points of it like you know what I have no idea.
0: Well, a lot of times I get the general, oh, well, it helps uh, our customers, you know, our so, for example, crime reports. Well, it helps law enforcement manage uh, geo-coded information about crimes. And it's like, okay, but what three specific things do they use most often? We don't know. You know, what are the three things that, you know, that get them excited to buy it? You know, what What are the things that your salespeople are talking to them about that get them to bite? We don't know. Well, you know, and that's that's when I start saying, OK, well, you know, if you if you have those conversations then with the people who are talking to your customers in your company and then you have the, the tracking set up so that you can see what they're into every day. Then you can figure that out, because then if you can make those features nicer or sweeter
1: or. Uh, easier to use, then they'll love you more. I just want to point out that what 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 Chuck is talking about is exactly the that that soft skills because he's got such a, a background in understanding businesses and understanding metrics. His background is is beyond just writing code. He knows to ask those questions, and that's 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 additional value that you bring to a team whether you're consulting or whether you're joining a team. That that additional value that you bring uh really can 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 add a lot to to that situation you ask questions that other people wouldn't think to ask
0: well one one thing related to that is i have found that companies have two different feelings about former consultants um and some companies hate them they they won't hire them because they're too independent or we're worried that they're just hanging in there until they can get enough in the bank to go back out on their own Um, and then there are other companies that will hire a former consultant or entrepreneur Just because then they have somebody in the tech team that can talk to the business points and talk to the business people and really understand the entire point of what they're doing in the first place.
3: So kind of going back, what was the name of that Ruby gem that you had mentioned that will actually show the most commonly edited or committed files?
0: I think it's just churn.
3: I'll have to look into that.
0: Um, I will Google it.
1: <laughs> I'm you're getting back to kind of like look, looking at the code base and what you're, what you're digging into. I will say that I, I do sort of fiddle with Git blame a lot, not necessarily to blame anybody, but just sort of to figure out, kind of get an idea of who owns what, if it's a, you know, if it's a team of people who, who's kind of spending their time. Cause I, I, you tend to see that you, you, you tend to see certain developers become responsible for certain parts of a system. Uh, whether it's intentional or not, it just sort of happens that people become subject area experts in a certain part of the application, and and it's just sort of good background knowledge to have. If I happen to be fiddling in a in a in a file, who who works on this? Um, and I and I use Git blame because I find that issue trackers lie.
0: Yep. Well, the other thing is is I mean sometimes Git blame isn't perfect. You know, somebody changes the indentation and so it updates that line of code. But I mean, most systems like GitHub, GitLab, et cetera, um, if you ask them, okay, what's the deal here? And then, you know, you look at the change and you can see it's a change in indentation. You can go back to previous versions and you can eventually find out who wrote that code. And it may take you an extra two minutes, but it's totally worth it if they can give you the answer you need.
1: It's also good because you're not going to disrupt people's flow it's, there's the things you can do yourself. You sort of self-service things are things you can do yourself. So you don't spend time bugging people like, Hey, what, what parts do you work on? Things like that, because they got other things that they want to do. You want to, yeah, you want to get information when you join a team, but you don't want to disrupt the flow of people who who are double booked. They've got features to push out, but they also are supposed to, uh, onboard you. So you want to try to do as much self-service as you can. Um, mm-hmm. So that the conversation, the conversation, when you do have to steal their time to find something out, you're you're prepared. You've done your homework.
3: So are we on a uh, tabs versus spaces debate?
1: I know what I use personally, but I'm using whatever the team uses. That's That's just what I do.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely the right way to go. I mean, even if it drives you crazy, right? I mean, most developers I know, tabs would drive them nuts.
1: I uh, don't even notice because i just turn the invisibles off and the tab key does whatever i tell it to do yep so i don't even notice i don't even i don't actually notice i notice in my own code when they're not when they're when they're when they're not the same that's the only time i really get upset is when there's a mix of them in the code base yep. that's that's when i get mad
0: so have any of you actually left teams because you couldn't onboard? like i i have but i'm just i'm just curious have you left teams I've, or been fired from teams because you couldn't quite get, get it?
1: I haven't left teams, but some of the smaller consulting gigs that I've done, I realized, uh, within the first couple of weeks that I wasn't a good fit. I wasn't a good fit for the project. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't either, either I didn't have the, I didn't have the ability to make the project a priority or I didn't, have, feel comfortable with the way the code base was working. Um, I think I've mentioned this on a previous on a previous podcast, but there's a rule that my dad had and he was tuning pianos a long time ago. And he, he, there were certain gigs he would turn down. Um, he's like, How, when was the last time you had your piano tuned? And if it was in the last six months or a year, he'd probably take it because it, he could, he could fix it. But it turns out that if a piano has been sitting for too long, you can't really tune it. You can get it in tune and then it'll slip tuning and he'll look bad. Cause like he did a bad job tuning the piano he doesn't really want that. And I've sort of also lived with that sort of thing. Like, if I come in and this thing is just such a mess that I don't feel confident that I can fix it or work with it, I would really rather find someone else who's a better fit and help the customer out and find someone who's going to do a good job for them, than try to do it myself and come away with and come away with myself being unhappy and the customer, and the client being unhappy. So I have walked away with from things and I've I've handed things off to other people that I that I know that would do a better job. I think that's a
2: really important point, Brian, you mentioned the idea of tuning a piano that has been tuned in forever and it might slip later and it makes you look bad. Um, I had that experience with a client and I would release stuff. And because of the other code that existed, it was impossible to like know whether the stuff I was writing actually worked and it was like Michigan Michigan critical stuff. Uh, and if it went bad, like it was, it was bad. Um, and it's like, I'm not going to write stuff that I can't tell if it actually works or not. Cause that like, you know, kind of like you said with the piano, that looks bad on me. And so I kind of got away from that as, as soon as I possibly could. Cause it was like hurting my reputation potentially the longer I stayed there.
0: I also, so I mentioned that I've, I've been in this situation though. Um, my issues were people issues. So I joined a team, their process was all over the place. And the other issue was that um, everybody had kind of siloed and they just expected me to jump in and work as a generalist. But the issue was was that um, if I tried to claim a ticket in Pivotal Tracker, then somebody would inevitably, you know, within a day, would come to me and, and change it from, you know, assigned to me to assigned to them because it was in their silo. And, you know, and so I wound up spinning my wheels for about, two or three weeks. Um, And then the other issue was, was that if I needed help from somebody, well, they'd be off on their own doing their own thing. And I couldn't get anybody to actually respond to me to explain how the system worked. And it was so complicated that there was no way for me to know all of the repercussions of what I was doing. And so I I would, I I think I solved a few tickets, but, you know, I either get feedback or code reviews from people saying, hey, look, you know, you, you didn't, solve for this problem, or you didn't account for this issue way off in this other part of the system. And so eventually it was, it just, I just realized that um, they were going to wind up paying me a lot of money for not a lot of return because I was just going to wind up running around wishing that I could contribute.
3: Yeah, I worked for this company one time that, uh, you know, they flew me in to kind of get onboarded with their product and, you know, to start developing. And it seemed like no one really cared enough to actually show me the ropes. But the person that they did assign to me, you know, I spent one day with, and half the time he was, uh, re- responding to emails and other stuff instead of actually showing me the thing. And then I'd come in the next day and they're like, oh yeah, we fired him. He was horrible. I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay. And then the rest of the time they didn't have anyone there or no one had time to actually sit with me. I'm like, you know what? I think that we made a mistake. I don't think I'm the right person for this uh, team. And I left because I'm like, that's crazy. You know, very dysfunctional.
0: Yeah, I also worked for a team that the onboarding actually went really well. So, you know, they flew me out to their office. Um, You know, I worked with their engineers for a week. They had me out there for a week and they had just brought on another consultant also uh, that same time. So we were both there at the same time. And, uh, you know, all of that went really well. But then what wound up happening was the project manager um, turned out to not really be a great project manager. And then the other issue was, was that they had an architect that was in charge of assigning us the tools that we were supposed to use. And this is why I said, I'm sorry on Jira because, um, they, they told us we had to use Jira, but nobody knew how to use Jira. Nobody knew how to set it up properly for our project. And this architect was so overloaded that he didn't have time to do it either even though he dictated that we had to use it we had to use uh, bamboo i think is their uh, ci system and so what we'd wind up doing is we wound up setting up uh, basically illicit systems to handle stuff because we never actually got access to bamboo and so i think we set up jenkins somewhere on somebody's dev machine and uh you know, for our scrum meetings, we would actually have a meeting before the meeting so that we could actually estimate all of the things. So we wouldn't have to spend two days doing estimations. And so even though they had good onboarding, it turned out that there were all of these other dysfunctions. And so even, even good onboarding, isn't a guarantee. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of times it's just, you know, communicating and being willing to, you know, to do whatever it takes to, to move the work forward. And, uh, it turned out that we worked well as a team. We just had to work around a couple of obstacles that were basically at a level higher than we actually could affect.
3: Yeah, I kind of had the same experience with Jira, uh, that you had and what I did to overcome it was I actually bought Jira myself, just the $10, uh, up to 10 user license, through it on a server that I have in my house, and just became familiar with what Jira was capable of. And I created all my development workflows within my local Jira and then exported to give to the employer to actually load for our team project.
0: Yeah, and so, see, see, that's the kind of team playing that I really like to see or hear about. And in most cases, they appreciate that kind of thing, right?
3: Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same workflow that we're still using today. So (laughs) I guess I did something really right or wrong.
0: (laughs) They're just too afraid of you to tell you what they think of it.
3: (laughs) That's right. I'm highly opinionated too. So we, we all get along.
0: (laughs) Does anyone have any other tips, tricks or ideas on uh, coming on to a new project or team?
3: look at the gem foul, look at the routes, Mm -hmm. check out the schema database and you're a pro.
1: If they give you access to Slack or something uh, similar to that, spend some time looking back at the history, as far as back as you go, just try to understand the team, understand the dynamics, understand the environment, and it'll be much easier for you to sort of fit in.
0: Just to add to that, generally what I do with, with that kind of a thing is I go back about two weeks and read everything. And then I'll go back a little bit further if I need more context, um, because once once you've looked at what they've actually been discussing for the last two weeks, you'll get a pretty good idea of, of what issues different people are having and what kinds of things they're discussing and where, you know, basically where the problems are and where things are actually working well.
2: I'd add one thing to be careful of fooling yourself into thinking, you know, things you don't actually know it's easy to come onto a project and think X and Y are really important, but then you get a couple months in and this always happens to me. I come into a new project and I think certain things are important and a few months down the road, I realized those few things weren't important at all. And there's a few other things that are way more important. Um, and it took me a while to, to realize that what seems important in the beginning isn't necessarily what's actually important if that makes sense.
3: Yeah, leave that stuff on your resume.
0: (laughs) This episode is sponsored by Compose.io. Databases are arguably the most difficult part of the stack to manage. The last thing you want is to wake up at 4 a.m. because the database failed and you have no backups. Compose has all that covered for you, so rest assured your database is fast, reliable, and always on is production-ready cloud databases on AWS and GCP for SoftLayer. So go check them out. You can pick from nine databases, including MongoDB, Elasticsearch, Redis, RethinkDB, MySQL, and one of the latest, DB, which is a fast drop-in replacement for Cassandra. All databases come with guaranteed RAM, IOPs, and CPU that auto-scale, automatic daily and on-demand backups, high availability nodes, security you can count on with, with private VLAN, IP whitelisting, SSH and SSL, two-factor authentication, and much more. Deploy your database in minutes and they'll take care of all of the administrative tasks like patches and upgrades. Setup is fast and easy, so go try them out for 30 days free at compose.com slash devchat.
3: Yeah, leave that stuff on your resume. (laughs) All right,
0: well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Jason, do you want to start us off with picks?
2: Sure. I decided that my recent picks haven't been eccentric enough. And so I'm going to pick a a weird one. Um, so there's this book I've had for, for years, but I just kind of picked it up again. It's called crust and crumb master formulas for serious bread bakers. Um, and it's a book about bread. Um, and the, the formulas in this book, some of them span multiple days worth of work. Uh, so, you know, it really is for serious bread bakers. Uh, obviously this doesn't have anything to do with computers. Um, this is, this is some very serious stuff and the results are great. Like the bread that you can bake from the formulas in this book is like just as good as you, it's better than what you would buy at a grocery store and just as good as what you might get from a bakery. So that's my eccentric pick for this episode.
0: All right, Brian. What are your picks?
1: I have uh, two picks that deal with uh, servers. Actually, um, a couple of tools I've been working with lately, uh, and I'm really, really enjoying. The first one is OS Query. Um, it's a nice uh, it's a nice tool that lets you query the logs on your system and query uh, you know other things using a using a, a SQL dialect. So it's really great to be able to grab system log entries with a select statement, uh, and grab, uh, Apache log entries and things like that, just using the, the SQL statements that you're familiar with as a developer. So it's kind of fun, um, to grab, to grab metrics from, you know, a production server or a development server or something like that, using, using this tool. Um, it's kind of a lot of fun to work with a great, great interface. Um, uh, I've been really enjoying using it on one of my servers uh, in a test environment. Um, the other tool is Linus, L Y N I S, and that is a tool to audit your server. And it will give you suggestions on things that you can do configuration changes, uh, hardware or uh, software changes, um, additional programs to install to harden your server. Uh, it'll suggest, it'll suggest the, the things that everyone knows, like change your SSH port uh, to a higher value. Um, but it, it'll also suggest other things like, Hey, you know, maybe install, uh, maybe install some additional programs to combat malware, uh, and things like that. And so it's a really nice comprehensive tool that you can just run. Um, you can either run it as a, as your super user account. Uh, to do like a full full test or you can actually use it in kind of a pen test mode so you run it as a, a non-user a non-super uh, user uh, and you can configure uh, you can configure the test that it runs it runs with a bunch of default tests but you can turn some of them off if if you don't need them uh, and so i i recommend playing around with both of those tools they're they're uh, os query and linux they're both pretty cool if you if you are working with servers and you want to get a little bit more insight into things
0: nice dave what are your picks
3: All right, Uh, my first pick is Device Masquerade, which is a way that you can use uh, single or create a shadow session with device to log in as another user. So if you have to support the application that you're building, sometimes logging in as a user who is reporting the problem, you're able to replicate it and then pinpoint where the issue is. Um, The other thing is my other pick is a Samsung 960 EVO NVMe. It is a solid state drive that connects your PCI Express bus through a M.2 port. I just picked one up from my computer and it is amazing. So I thought I was rocking at 600 megabytes per second with my old Evo, but this thing is literally reading at 3200 megabytes per second. So it is like blazing fast. Um, And I got a new CPU and stuff with it. So now my full test suite on my application used to run about eight minutes. Now it's down to two minutes, 30 seconds. And that's what some water cooling overclocking.
0: Wow, that's cool. Um, I'm going to jump in with a couple of tools here, too. um, And I'm also going to talk really briefly about some other personal stuff. Um, One of my picks is um, the keto diet or the ketogenic diet. Um, And in particular, the book that I read that kind of explained it to me is called Keto Clarity by Jimmy Moore. And um, I've been doing it for, what, about a week? And... um, I've actually been adapting pretty fast. So the idea is you adapt from uh, carb burning to uh, fat burning. And since I'm diabetic, <laughs> the the whole carb um, uh, metabolic pipelines kind of screwed up for me anyway. And so uh, anyway, I've felt a ton better just switching over. Um, I feel like and and some of this may just be completely placebo effect. I don't know. But I feel like my vision's gotten, be- gotten better. And yes, uh, high blood sugar can affect your vision. Um, I've also just in general felt better. I haven't been hungry. I probably eat about twice a day. Um, and usually one of those is a snack and then the other one's more of a meal. Um, but anyway, I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I'm really feeling good. Um, I've been check- checking my blood ketones along with my blood sugars. And my blood sugars have pretty much evened out at this point, And my blood ketones are, uh, are right... Where they should be after a week. In fact, they're a little bit higher than they, than you know, than they expect it to be. But everybody adapts at a different speed. So I've been feeling really good about that. And then um, the other thing that I'm going to pick, and uh, Brian's probably going to like this since he works for DigitalOcean. Um, but uh, I have I run devchat.tv on DigitalOcean, and um, one of so the devchat.tv server was crashing over the weekend. Um, I got a note from Dave. I got notes from other people um, and it was really frustrating. And so um, anyway, I sent a message into support and they helped me figure out what I had screwed up pretty darn fast. Um, And so DigitalOcean support is something that I'm going to pick. I wish they had phone support because I really, (laughs) I really wanted to call somebody. But, um, you know, they got back to me quick enough to where um, I could fix that all up. Um, But I also wound up setting up a new server and just moving everything over there. And uh, a few tools that I used to do some of that, Uh, one of them is HTOP. um, And I had that running on the the original server just to see what was going on. And yeah, um, the PHP processes were uh, leaking memory. And so um, I would see the memory build up, build up, build up, build up, right? And then eventually it would crash. So um, anyway, that... HTOP is nice. If you've used top, um, then HTOP is just a nicer display on that. And what it does is it tells you how much memory your machine's using. It tells you how much um, memory each process is using and things like that. Um, and then one other thing I'm going to pick about DigitalOcean that I'm really excited about because um, I hadn't logged in for a while. Um, they have uh, monitoring now. And so you install the DigitalOcean uh, agent on your, on your machine and then... Um, it will actually tell you in graphs on the web interface so that I don't have to log in anymore. Um, For one, it'll tell me how much memory it's using, etc. But also, um, I've set it up so that it will uh, annoy me in Slack if there's a problem. So if it goes over a certain memory or CPU or things like that, you can set these thresholds and it'll let you know. So I'm pretty happy about that too. And then the last thing that I'm going to also mention about DigitalOcean is the snapshots. So... um, you know, I, I was thinking I'd just spin up another machine because the machine that I had wouldn't boot up because I had messed up the way I set up swap on it. Um, but, yeah, you know, it, it was really handy. And the last thing I'm going to also say about DigitalOcean is that their uh, tutorials are top-notch, and they're they're extremely helpful. So, anyway, um, I'm really happy with um, my hosting provider, and I just can't say enough nice things about them.
1: So... well. It's it's it warms my heart to hear that about the tutorials because that's 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 where I work at DigitalOcean. So that that I love hearing things like that. We all we we love hearing how much the tutorials help people. So personally, thank you for that. It it makes me feel really good about what I do. Well,
0: I don't know if I've used any of yours yet, so <laughs>
1: you, you never know. You never. I I I edit a lot of them, so you'll you'll never know yet. You, oh. You look okay. at the bottom, you Look at the very bottom to figure that out. We make sure that the pe- people who write those tutorials get the get top billing. So. Yeah, I,
0: I've seen the authors' names. I think it was Justin or Jason or some somebody that wrote the ones that I was using.
1: But yeah, yep. Yeah. Uh, we we love we love those kind of, we love those uh, those kinds of comments uh, from people. Yep.
0: Yeah. yeah, I I honestly I've thought about just doing like a, a demo and just walking through my account and how to set up servers and stuff because I, I think it's a terrific solution. So anyway, um, it was a headache over the weekend to try and figure all this stuff out, but it all got fixed. So. Yeah, And uh, yeah, that's those are pretty much all the picks I have. I also want to remind everybody about Ruby Remote Conf, which is coming up in June. So uh, definitely get a ticket. Um, I am finalizing the speakers this week. I took a little bit longer because I wanted to make sure I was getting the talks that people wanted. So I'd actually put out a survey and I'm going to be working through that and inviting speakers from the call for proposals and uh, just from people that I know that can talk about those issues. So Yeah, if if you have any other topics that you want to hear at Ruby Remote Conf, by all means, just tweet at me at CMAXW or email me, Chuck, at devchat.tv, and we'll see what we can line up. If we can't line up a speaker for it, we can probably get them on Ruby Rogues. So, um, you know, that's not a lost cause letting me know. Um, But, yeah, that's all I've got. So we'll go ahead and wrap this one up, and we'll catch you all next week. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye, guys. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by CashFly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with CashFly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.